It is good for us to be together, to celebrate communion together, to worship and sing together, and then to also now prepare to receive of of the word of God and to hear uh, the scripture preached and for us to respond to that as well. Let me just once again welcome those of you who are uh, guests uh, to fellowship. Welcome. We're so glad uh, that you're here and uh, I hope and pray that you have already been blessed uh, by being a part of our service. Let me just once again say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. I hope and pray that your day is blessed and you know how much God loves you. We are uh, moving now to the time of preaching this word of God, and we've been doing that through a series in the book of Acts, working our way really verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today, as we continue in our study, what we're going to be looking at is something uh, that I called a surprising mission, a surprising mission. If you think back in your life, can you think of a time maybe when you, when you took a trip, uh, you made a long journey? Um, and at least in your view, it was, it was a, a long journey. And, and the whole time you had an idea of what uh, this trip would be like and also the destination once you got there. You kind of had an idea of what it would be like, um, what it would result in. And then when you get there or you're traveling and throughout the trip, you realize it's really nothing like you thought. Uh, that happens to us sometimes. I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking about this specifically and it just made me think for some reason, not really sure why, but it made me think of, uh, the trip that our youth group here at fellowship took to uh, student life missions camp years ago. I think it might've been like 2008 to Liberty university. It was the first time we did a missions camp. Some of you that are here today may have been a part of that trip. Um, I remember planning that. Uh, we had to rent a, a March bus, and uh, I remember thinking uh, about the fact, how in the world is this trip going to go? Uh, we are going to be traveling with 40-plus uh, teenagers, 400 miles. We're going to be gone uh, for a week, and uh, we had a bus driver uh, that we didn't know. He didn't know us, you know, and I just kept thinking of all the things that could go wrong, and if you know me... I like to try to provide contingencies for every one of them. And so it was a lot of like, okay, if this happens, this is what we'll do. And uh, the the thing that happened with this trip was nothing went wrong. Like everything went well. We had a blast uh, driving and coming back. Uh, I remember specifically, we, we talked a lot about just how we would relate to the to the bus driver because that's not an easy task when you're driving teenagers around that much, that long. And then while we were there, he also had to drive us to our different mission sites. But by the end of the trip, he was taking pictures with like different students. And, uh, and so he had become like uh, buddies with them. And so sometimes when we're thinking about things like this, sometimes things go worse than expected and sometimes they go way better than expected. The reality is, is that no matter what we're planning, no matter what we're thinking about, we always have to be prepared for the unexpected. And sometimes that unexpected is, is good. And sometimes it's not so good. And in our text today, Paul and this missions team finally gets to their destination. And what happens there is not at all what they would have expected, but it is precisely what God intended. 
And that's something that we all need to learn in our lives as well. So let's pray and ask God to go before us. Lord God, we ask you to go before the preaching and the teaching of your word. This is your word. We submit ourselves to it. We see it as the authority in our lives. We know that there is life in this word. It is the living word. And give us ears to hear and a heart to understand and a willingness to obey. I thank you for each and every person here. And I pray that you would speak to them as only you can, God. We trust you to do what you do. And may we be, may we be faithful in what you've called us to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 16. Uh, two weeks ago, we left off at verse 10. And what we saw was that the Holy Spirit stopped this group, uh, this missions team, twice. Uh, two times stopped them. And then he gave a, a, Paul a vision. And that vision t- said uh, for him to go to Macedonia. And so they're on their way. And as you're thinking about this, you're thinking, okay, God must have something super big, super cool planned for them because there's a lot of rerouting here and he must have something pretty great in mind. So we pick up at verse 11. We're going to see this journey to uh, Philippi. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And so they set sail from Troas, and you can kind of see here on this map, Troas is down here to the right, and then there's that island, Samothrace, and then they get to the port city of Neapolis. And so uh, where Troas is, is across the Aegean Sea from from Greece, it's on the western shore of uh, Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and it's actually near uh, ancient Troy. And so again, the Holy Spirit closed doors. We saw that two weeks ago. When they wanted to go to Asia, closed doors. When they wanted to go north to Bithynia, closed doors. But then while in Troas, Paul gets this vision and off they go to Macedonia. And then Luke tells us something very specific. He says they made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is an island. Again, you see the island there in the the middle of the Aegean Sea. It's actually about halfway between Asia Minor and the mainland of Greece. And so they stayed overnight on this island. And then the next day, early in the morning, they they get back on the ship and they head to the port city there of Neapolis. And that, that language, direct voyage, indicates that they had favorable winds. It's 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 kind of written like nautical language because they traveled 156 miles in two days. And and that's not the norm for that trip. Later, we see that they come back from Neapolis through Samothrace, and it takes them five days to make that voyage. So you, you, you know what that would be like. You have the winds in your, in your favor, and so you're going, and you're making really good time. God seems to be taking them quickly to Philippi because he, he's in charge of, of these winds Again, he must, he must have something big in mind for them there. And he's getting them there fast. Then Luke tells us in verse 12 that they didn't stay in Neapolis. They got off the ship. They walked the 10 miles inland to Philippi. So they get off to the port city. They didn't stay in that port city and preach the gospel and try to evangelize there. No, they made their way right up to Philippi, drive, uh, walking those 8 to 10 miles. No driving. 
But notice, notice that there's no closed doors to Philippi. Like what we saw before, right? Nothing weird happened. So this must be where God wants them. It must be, this is what all this directing has been, has been going on. And, and, and you know, you, you, when something like this happens in our lives, a lot of times we'll be thinking like, well, this must mean a revival is going to break out, right? I mean, after all, why, why would God go through such measures to bring these guys to this particular city? Something big is going to happen. I want to give you some background on Philippi so you understand the city a little bit more um, before we go on with the uh, narrative. So first, uh, this, this city of Philippi is the leading city of the Macedonia region. So it's, it's the place to go when you're in this area. It's named after Philip of Macedon, who is the father of Alexander the Great. And he named the city after himself. So he's a pretty humble guy. Named the city after himself. And then it was named as a Roman colony by Octavian in 31 BC. There was actually a battle that took place um, right right around uh, this area. And after this battle is when Octavian then named uh, this city, Philippi, a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, what that meant was the city, it, it reported directly, answered directly to the emperor of Rome. And, and Rome was, was famous for when they took over lands, they'd even have some of the, uh, the people that were there uh, from that land, they would actually be able to rule, but they'd rule under the Romans. But with this Roman colony, it was a direct answer to the emperor. It was also known as Little Rome, this city. It was very Roman. Roman citizens were exempt from paying taxes here, and it actually ended up becoming a place where the Roman soldiers would go to retire. So this is, again, a picture of what this city is like. This would be a very Gentile Roman city. And again, God seems to have a plan here bringing this missionary group to this specific Roman city. Now remember, the missionary group we know is Paul, right? It's Silas, it's Timothy. We learned about them picking up Timothy. And then Luke started referring to himself as joining in. So this is the team that's there. Now let's look at Paul's approach to gospel witness. Verse 12, we remain in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Okay, so for those of us who have been part of this series, this language of the Sabbath should start to be very familiar to us. Right? We've seen this before. On the Sabbath, Paul is looking to do gospel ministry and and he would typically go to the synagogue to do that. But Luke does not tell us they go to a synagogue here. Instead, he tells us they went outside the city gate to the riverside. Now, Luke does not tell us this plainly, but it seems that there is no synagogue in Philippi. And it would make sense because, again, it's a Gentile Roman city. Now, In understanding Jewish tradition, a synagogue would require at least 10 men, 10 what they would call heads of households. 
And if you had 10 heads of households, you could then form a synagogue. If you didn't have that, you weren't able to. And so you had to follow those rules. And so it seems that here in Philippi, they do not meet that requirement. And so again, as the Jewish tradition holds, if there is no synagogue, that doesn't mean you don't worship on the Sabbath. You, you do, you just got to do it differently. And, and so what the Jewish worshipers of God are supposed to do is they're supposed to go outside the city gate, under the open sky, find a creek or a river where running water is there. And that's, that's what they're really looking for. Water that is not a lake, but running water for cleansing because that's part of the, the Jewish process, right? And tradition for cleansing. And then they're to worship God there. So Paul, knowing this tradition, goes outside the city gate looking for a place of prayer. Calling it a place of prayer because this is where they would gather to pray. The place where the Jewish worshipers would gather to worship God. And Luke tells us they found the place. They sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered in that place to worship. There's no mention of men, just women. The women here would gather and they would do what would be typical if you were in this situation and not having a synagogue and being outside the city gates. You would pray, you would read the Old Testament, the, the law, and then you would discuss what was read similar to what would happen in the synagogue. So Paul, according to what Luke is telling us here, must have shared the gospel with these women. And being that Paul would have been considered a traveling rabbi, it, it really would have been a, a quite an honor for these women to have Paul and Timothy, this, you know, this, this uh, young man uh, learning and being discipled, and then having Silas and, and Luke there. It would be quite an honor to have these, these guys here and Paul as their, as their teacher on this Sabbath. So this is kind of the background. And then Luke introduces us to Lydia. Now, before we look at this Lydia that Luke is about to tell us about, I want you to, again, just stop and realize what's happening here. Sometimes that's what we need to do. When we're reading narrative in, in the Bible, as you do your daily reading, it really is important to step back sometimes and say, okay, wait a minute, what, what is happening here? Let me, get a, let me get a picture of what is going on here. The Holy Spirit stopped Paul twice. Then a vision. You know, and, and, and from Troas on a boat. A stop on an island overnight. Then an almost supernaturally fast boat ride to Neapolis. A 10 mile walk to Philippi. Remain there for a few days. All of that. To speak to a few women meeting outside the city by the river. That would sound like, is this really what we're here to do? Is this really what we came here for? You know, like, is this why all of this was going on for, for th this? Is this what God had in mind? This isn't the revival that I thought was coming. Maybe Paul... 
would be thinking, or maybe we would be thinking, because we don't have any indication that Paul would be thinking this, but you know, this would have been a good trip for Barnabas and Mark. But why us? But see, God's plans are not our plans. God's plans are not our plans. So let's take a look at who this Lydia is. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Luke introduces us here to Lydia, the first person that they're talking about after all of this. And it seems like God has something in store here for her and for them. So let's break down a little bit who this Lydia is. She's a Gentile woman from Thyatira. That's a city actually on the other side of the Aegean in the province of Asia. Now Lydia is also the name of the Roman province of Thyatira. So it's possible that when we in the Bible are introduced to her as Lydia, that they're calling her Lydia as a reference to where she's from, the woman of Lydia, because that is the Roman province of where Thyatira is. She also uh, sold purple fabric and purple dyed goods. So Thyatira was the center of the purple dye trade. And, and this, the purple dye was made from uh, shellfish that they would find in that region. They would boil uh, these uh, shellfish and an oil would, would come from it. And they'd have to take the oil and use this oil uh, that would come as a result of that process in the making of the dye. And also from the roots of a plant that was found in that area. She was a wealthy businesswoman. This fabric and, and the dyed goods were expensive. It wasn't cheap. And actually at this time, especially if you possessed those things, that was considered a luxury. You had a luxury item. The color purple was associated with royalty and the wealthy. And so it's very likely that Lydia was running a profitable business. And she's described by Luke as a worshiper of the Jewish God. When you read that she was a worshiper of God, we need to understand what that means. We've seen that language before in the book of Acts. This does not mean that she was a believer in Jesus. It's not what he's saying. It means that as a Gentile woman, she had come to believe in the Jewish God, similar to how Luke even described Cornelius when we studied that. He also believed in the Jewish God before he was saved. And so all of this is the background that Luke gives us. He doesn't give us everything, but he gives us that. And then we see that Lydia believes the gospel. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Again, very interesting how Luke writes this. Notice again what he tells us. He tells us that the Lord opened her heart. Who opened her heart? The Lord. The Lord opened her heart. Why did the Lord do that? Why did the Lord do that? Well, the Lord did that. Well, we could think maybe that the Lord did that because Paul had just come out of some, you know, relational evangelism training 
you know, and he'd learn how to put those things into place. No, he didn't, this wasn't technique. He didn't even know her. He just met her. The Lord opened her heart because the Lord is the one who opens hearts. Not us. And I think that's a lesson we all need to learn. And it's one of the strong points that comes out of this text. The Lord opens hearts, not us. We've got to learn the difference between faithfulness and trying to produce certain results. Faithfulness is different. Paul is being faithful. The Lord is opening her heart. Now, Luke does not tell us what Paul said to these women. That bothered me. It's like, why didn't you tell? I would like to know what Paul said. All he said, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What did Paul say? I'd like to know that. As a, as a pastor, as a teacher, I'd like to learn what he did and maybe try to put it into practice, right? These are, this is what we do. He doesn't tell us. He just tells us that Lydia paid attention to what Paul said because the Lord opened her heart. Now, again, why didn't Luke tell us? And this is, again, important about how we study the Bible. We, it wasn't a mistake. He didn't miss something. We, we have everything we need. God has given us his revelation. We have everything we need. It, in, in other words, it, it's, it's not the point of what he's trying to tell us. He wants us to see again that he is the one doing the work here. The Lord is the one who did a work in her heart. And that, is, that part of it is very clear. Now, if we do some just solid Bible study and go back and see how Paul handled his presentation of the gospel in the previous cities that he's been in, like when in Acts 13, when he was in Pisidian Antioch, what did he do? Well, there Luke told us pretty much, maybe not everything, but he told us a lot of what Paul said there. And he told the people about Jesus. He told them who he was, who Jesus was. He told them what Jesus did. He told them about Jesus' life. He told them that Jesus died. He told them that Jesus rose again. He told them that Jesus is ascended uh, with the Father. And that only through this Jesus is the forgiveness of sins available to all. He told them that too. And he said that to Jews and to Gentiles. So we would think that the message here would probably be quite similar to that. And that this is what the Lord opened her heart to believe. The good news about Jesus. That's important for us to understand. What is it that the Lord opened her heart to? That Paul's a nice guy? That these guys were so kind to spend their time with these women by the river? No, that's not, what, that's not the point Luke is making. The point Luke is making is that the Lord opened her heart to the truth about Jesus. The good news about Jesus. 
that her sins could be forgiven because of what Jesus did for her. Not that Jesus gets her, but that Jesus came to save her from her sin. Save her from her sin. Because that's what Paul preached very clearly in Pisidian Antioch. He said that through Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ can you have the forgiveness of sins. That he's God in the flesh, the sinless one, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who ascended. And he now reigns again at the right hand of the Father. So salvation is available for Lydia through this Jesus. And only this Jesus. And the Lord, the Lord opened her heart. Again, just taking what it is that Luke tells us here. And then in verse 15, we see her baptism. And after she was baptized and her household as well. Again, very, very, not much, not much being told here. And after, after what? Well, and after, after the Lord opened her heart. There's just, there's just missing pieces here from our perspective, not at all from God's. He knows exactly what's going on here. And, and yet everything that we need to learn is still here. So Lydia apparently believed the gospel, was saved, clear message of the gospel. And again, the gospel being not that she believed in the Jewish God, but has now come to understand Jesus is God in the flesh. He, this Jesus of Nazareth lived, died, rose again, and only through him can she be forgiven. So she believes this. Luke tells us that she was baptized. She and the members of her household. Her oikos is the word there. The household there would include family members, servants. And since we know a little bit about Lydia and, and that she was a seller of these goods and she had a home that was large enough to actually have these guys go uh, to see um, and, and spend time with. She probably has wealth. So it's likely that she has servants living with her. It's also likely that Lydia is unmarried. We don't know that for sure, but there is no mention of her husband which would be typical of the writing if she were married and also possible that she was a widow and that comes specifically from the fact that she's considered to be a head of the household herself with no other man mentioned. So all in her household, again, her household, that's what's key, because it wouldn't be her household in another setting if, if there was another man uh, present and a part of this situation, again, of how Jewish tradition works. But all in her household believe the gospel, all must have responded in faith and believe. Now, Luke does not tell us if infants or children were present or not. On that, again, he is silent. We cannot assume that that's the case. That they are present. He do, again, he just doesn't tell us that. He's not silent, though, about believing before baptizing. What we would call believer's baptism, belief in faith, then baptism. That is clear here, and it's without question the norm in the book of Acts. How many times in the book of Acts do we see that belief, then baptism? 
And again, we're going to see more about baptism in a couple weeks when we look at what happens a little bit later in Philippi. So the lesson for us would be, if you are a believer, get baptized. You're a believer. That's what believers do. They get baptized. It's part of, it's part of following in obedience to Christ. And, and you've heard me say this to you, parents. I recommend baptism, then communion for your children. Uh, I just think communion can then be the monthly reminder to them that they need to be baptized. And then begin to receive of the ordinance of the Lord's table with the bread and the cup. So we have baptism, her whole household. And then we have something else that Luke is very clear about, her hospitality. Notice Lydia's hospitality in verse 15. She urged us, urged us, that's pretty strong. She's, she's saying, she's actually kind of compelling them. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That word uh, prevailed was like she persuaded, like they were trying to do something else. And she kind of won the argument and got them to stay. What, what she's basically getting at, the way this is written is this way. Paul, if you believe that I am now a believer in Jesus, would you come to my house and stay? That's kind of how this is presented. So, so by going to her house, what Paul and his companions were doing was they were confirming her faith in Christ. They were saying, yes, we see that you have trusted in Christ. She opened her home to these weary missionaries. It's just very interesting as I was thinking about that because of the timing of what we've got going on. Our missionaries coming in for our missions conference, right, next weekend. As Nick said, many of them are coming and many of you are hosting them in your home. You've agreed to do that. You're hosting weary missionaries. That is biblical hospitality. Opening your home to bless them in Jesus' name. That's the example given here by Lydia. It's what, it's what we see. Those of you who host community groups, same thing. You do the same. You willingly open your home for the saints, for the body of Christ to enjoy rest and fellowship together in Jesus' name. That is biblical hospitality. And it's clear here that this is what Lydia did. Now, stepping back from that, I, I want to make sure that I again emphasize the significance of this story. Because by itself, this story might seem uh, to be just, you know, not too remarkable. A woman gets saved, uh, they, they go to the riverside outside the city gates. But what makes this story come alive really is all that we know preceding it and following it as well as what happened. God literally stopped these missionaries twice, said, no, you're not going there. No, you're not going there. You're going here instead. And he gave Paul a vision. And it was interesting. I was thinking about the vision. The vision was of a Macedonian man, but what Paul met was a Macedonian woman. This was a surprising end to the journey to Europe. And it's a surprising start to the mission in Europe. The first person recorded in the Bible as being saved on the continent of Europe was Lydia. Think about that. An unremarkable woman, a Gentile businesswoman, a seller of purple goods. Yet it was God's will 
to bring the gospel to her and for her to be saved. We are not writing the story. God is. We need to remember that. We need to remember when things don't go the way that we think they should go, that he is the one writing the story. And we see that so clearly here. And what we're going to see, and as if you continue to look into the book of Acts, and we're going to see some of this a little bit later, but as we continue to go on, and even as you read some of the epistles, Lydia and her house here in Philippi becomes a home base for the gospel. It's like God was saying, I've got a, I've got a headquarters ready in Philippi. She just doesn't know it yet. We're going to get her saved, and then this is going to be a place when the, when, the, when the missionaries come into Neapolis and they go and they head to, to Philippi, there's going to be a place for them to have rest and be encouraged and be sent out. It's part of God's plan. It's an amazing thing to think about. We're not writing the story. God is. Now, I want to give you two truths to think about. First one is pretty obvious. The second one, less obvious. First obvious one is this. We should all be bold gospel witnesses. We know that. We've said that a hundred times throughout this series. Clearly proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. The point that I want to make here is the, is the clarity. We need to understand our gospel witness in terms of clear gospel proclamation. This is different than just talking about church with your friends and family. It's different than saying my faith is important to me. Faith in who? About what? None of that is making the gospel clear. That's conversation. It might be getting there. It might be the on-ramp. But what, what we see here is we need to clearly tell people about Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived, died, rose again, coming back. Only one way to be saved from your sin. Trust in Christ's atoning work. Trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Clear gospel proclamation. We need to be thinking about that. How do I if I'm in a conversation and it's getting spiritual, it's going in that direction, Lord, Spirit of God, give me the opportunity to make the gospel clear. What happens from there is not up to you. Who opens the hearts? God does. You just tell them about Jesus. Now, the less obvious point, bold gospel witness does not mean that God needs our help. So what, what starts to happen sometimes is we can take this and, and take it in the wrong direction. And we start to think what it really means to be a bold gospel witness is, is that I got to really help God out. I, I think this point can be made clearer with a quote uh, that I want to share with you from A.W. Tozer. Uh, first part of it is this. We commonly represent him, God, as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Now, I just want you to take that in for a minute and say, ask yourself, am I doing that in my witness? Do I, do I actually present God in a way that makes him seem like a frustrated father? Do I make, out, do I make God out to be dependent on me? On us? Listen, God is not a frustrated father seeking help from all of us. 
because so many people need him and he's just overwhelmed by it. When we begin to think that, we're not helping to be a witness. We become actually an obstacle. The second part of this quote is too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. Yeah, Almighty God. Remember that. Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, for the lost, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. Do you hear what that's saying? That we can actually come across like we pity God in our gospel presentation, in our evangelism. Because he's trying so hard to save so many. And he just can't do it without us. And then the last part is this. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. This is... This is humbling to think that we would present, that we've got people going into ministry saying, I'm going into ministry because I'm going to help God out. He needs me. And you wonder why you begin, you see people fail and get frustrated and burned out. This is what I would call man-centered theology. It's man-centered. It's a theology built upon who we are, not upon who God is. Man-centered theology says, God needs my help. God-centered theology says, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. Now, you might be wrestling with this going, wait, wait, what are you saying? I just thought you told us to be gospel witnesses. I did. That's the encouragement from scripture, to be gospel witnesses. But don't take that to mean, don't take that to mean that we have a weak God. God is not weak. I was thinking about this. If every one of us in this room, pastors included, decided today we're never going to do anything else for God. We're done. We've done it all. We're not doing anything more. I can tell you that God's purposes would continue on just fine. That's who God is. That's what we need to understand. And so when we understand this approach, it doesn't decrease our witness, it increases our witness because we have a big view of God. Our God is so mighty, so awesome, so wonderful, how could we not tell people about him? As opposed to, God would really just, really help God out if you'd believe. You know, like 10 people this week I shared the gospel with, none of them believe. Can you just be the one? It'll really encourage him. I mean, we're making God out to be a weak God. Just tell them about Jesus and who he is and their need to be saved by him. We serve the almighty God. He doesn't need me, but praise God and his grace, he will use us for his glory. That's amazing. He will use you for his glory if we allow him to. And there's no better calling in life. So remember, the Lord is the one that opens hearts. So if you're praying for someone, and I know you are, there's probably somebody that you're praying for a whole lot. Remember that. Be encouraged. The Lord is the one who will open their heart. You be faithful to what he's calling you to do. He did it in Macedonia here with Lydia. 
And he is still opening hearts today. Amen? He's still doing it. He just wants us to be faithful. He will do the rest. So this trip may not have been what Paul and his crew maybe expected. A little group of women by the river outside the city gate. But it was precisely what God intended. And God had a plan and is going to use it to accomplish his purposes. That's what we need to trust in. I hope that's encouraging to you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for being the one and only true God, our almighty God. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us. We thank you, God, that we can trust you, that you are a God that has been faithful. And yes, you have called us to be your witnesses. May we be bold, may we be unashamed, but may we never think, God, that that means that you are dependent on us. No, we are dependent on you. And we're thankful to be because you give us strength, you show us mercy, you show us love. We want to give you all the praise and the glory. Help us to be faithful to you as the witnesses you've called us to and to believe and see you as an almighty strong God that is capable of all things. Help us to trust you in that way. We thank you for your word. May it continue to bear fruit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.